Well, dear congregation, on the Lord Jesus Christ, once again, we are reintroduced to this woman from Shunem. I trust you'll recall from chapter 4 how this woman's devotion to God was set in the backdrop of Israel's persistent disobedience to God at a time when the vast majority of Israel were, were departing from God. Here was a woman who was devoted to God, believing that Elisha was the holy man of God, the word-bearer of God. You recall that she built an addition to her home so that whenever Elisha was passing through her village, he always knew that, that he had a place to stay with the woman in Shunem. And what, a, and what a reward she received from the hand of the Lord. Not only did God give her a son, but even after her son had died, God raised her son back to life. It stands out to us as one of the, the great miracles in the Old Testament, pointing us forward to the resurrection of Christ and to the promise that we too will be raised from the dead. But as I said a number of weeks ago, life is not always easy for the people of God. Life in this world is a, a mixed bag, and sometimes it's hard for us to, to make sense of it all because the same God who, who brings His people into those seasons of great gladness is also the God who, who brings His people through seasons of great sadness. Understand God's ways. But this much we do know for sure that when God does bring us through those seasons of sadness, God is, is testing us. When trials and, and hardships come, the Lord is testing our reliance to see, will we still rely upon Him? Will we rely upon His Word when troubles come our way? Or will we rely on ourselves? Will we rest on our own strength and imagine that we know best? Well, here in 2 Kings chapter 8, we see that this woman's reliance has remained rooted in God. For seven years, we discover she lived according to the Word of God. She uprooted her entire life. She moved to a foreign land because God said so. And now that the seven years of famine are past, she's, she's made her return. She's come back to Israel, but only to discover that, that her house and her land have been taken away from her. What's, going, what's God going to do about this? She comes back, and it's another test, another trial, more trouble for the woman from Shunem. Is God going to abandon her? Will God turn a blind eye towards her? Of course, we know the answer by no means. God is going to restore her fortunes, and as God does it, as God restores this woman's fortunes, we're given a picture of how God will do the same thing for us, how God has and will continue to restore our fortunes as well. The God of Elisha is the God who restores our fortunes. But we needed to first back up. Before we come to the widow's restoration, we need to see in the first place what we can learn from her reliance. In verse 1, we discover that as a, as a special act of kindness, the prophet Elisha said to her, arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. And in verse 2, we read that the woman did exactly as the prophet said. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. And so from the very outset, the Spirit of Christ is once again drawing this sharp line of contrast between the woman's devotion and Israel's disobedience. It is indeed on account of Israel's disobedience that God is, is sending this famine. As I've been 
emphasized in the last number of weeks. Now we know that, that famines did not just happen in Israel. But that just about every time we read the word famine, we can insert the word curse because famines were expressions of God's covenant curse. They were expressions of God's judgment against Israel's unfaithfulness. God sent famines upon the land to to humble His people, to bring them to repentance. God's famines were sent upon Israel to make them see that disobedience always leads to death. Something that's as true for us today as it was back then. Of course, God may not send physical famines upon us in the same way He sent physical famines upon Israel long ago, but He does bring us, bring us through seasons of spiritual famine. As the canons of Dort remind us, our ongoing sins greatly offend God. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They suspend the exercise of faith. They severely wound the conscience, and sometimes... They even cause us to lose the sense of God's favor until we return to God in repentance and faith. Elisha tells us very plainly that this famine has come from the hand of the Lord. Arise and depart from your house with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. And without a word of back talk, without a moment's hesitation, The woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. What devotion, what reliance. Just imagine putting yourself in this woman's shoes. Here's a woman who who has it all. She has wealth and property and a family. But when the prophet of the Lord said, arise and depart, she arose and departed. She left it all behind according to God's word. And this congregation should really challenge us to look at our own lives. In Psalm 147, we sang about how God has made His statutes known to us. No other nation is so blessed. They do not know His law. O Zion, praise the Lord your God. His praise proclaim with all, we sang. But do we believe that it is a real blessing to know the will of God? In His grace and mercy, God has shown us the way of blessing. In His grace, God has has revealed to us in His Word. He said, here's what I want you to do. But are we saying in response to Him, yes, Lord, whatever you say. When God calls us to do something, do you respond by saying, yes, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it comes at a a cost to me. I will do whatever you say because I trust that your ways are holy, righteous, and good. This congregation is the question that we need to grapple with this morning. Are we doing what God is calling us to do? Some of you are well aware of the fact that God is calling you to do something and you're not doing it. Perhaps you're a father and you've been neglecting the word of God in your home. You haven't been taking your role of head of the home seriously. Perhaps you're a wife and rather than seeking to serve your husband and submit to your husband, you're undermining him at every turn. Perhaps you're a young man or a young woman and you're viewing pornography at home or you're cheating on your homework and tests or you're constantly lying to your parents about where you are and and what you're actually doing. Perhaps you're a young boy or a young girl and you're bullying kids at school. You're not including others or being kind. Perhaps you're the ringleader of such a group. 
Maybe you're not listening to mom and dad. You ever do that? Boys and girls not listen to mom and dad. Everything is a battle before you finally do what they're asking you to do. Some of you are well aware of the fact that God is calling you to do one thing, but you're doing another thing. That's what Israel was doing in the days of this, of the prophet Elisha. God was calling them to do one thing, and they said, no, we're going to do another thing. I mean, if this is true of you, then you need to repent life a little more closely because none of us graduates from the school of repentance until we die. Don't you know that disobedience leads to death? Don't you know that as the Puritan pastor John Owen said, you must always be in the business of killing sin or sin will be in the business of killing you? Don't you see that as we heard last Sunday from Jeremiah 2, that your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you? Don't you see that it is bitter to disobey the Lord, as Jeremiah said, that it's not good for you to disobey the Lord? The prophet Elisha spoke to the woman from Shunem about the wrath of God that was to come. He called for, for radical obedience. She was to leave her home and her possessions behind and flee. And she did exactly that. She relied on the Lord. She acted according to the word of the Lord. And for seven years, the Lord preserved her. For seven years, she lived in the land of the Philistines, and God kept her safe. For it's always safer. It's always safer to trust in the Lord, to, to obey the word of the Lord, even when it's difficult and costly and hard. It's always safer to trust in God than to rely upon yourself and the reasoning of the world. Well, in verse 3, we read that at the end of these seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, but she returns only to discover that her house and her land have been confiscated. Apparently, someone had, had come along and said, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's my land now. It's my house now. And commentators suggest that perhaps it was the king himself. Perhaps this king was following the example of his great-great-grandfather Ahab, who, who did the same thing to Naboth. But isn't this the sort of thing that often happens in our own lives, in our world today? Here was a woman who, who obeyed the Lord. She relied upon God. She did what God said. She obeyed Him. But what did her obedience get her? Greater hardship. She comes back to Israel only to discover that what she had before has been taken away. Isn't this often our experience as well? It's often the, the boy who stands up for the kid who's being bullied that gets bullied next. It's often, the, it's often the teenager who says, no, guys, we shouldn't be watching this. We shouldn't be listening to this. We shouldn't be doing this. Well, he's often the one who's then mocked and ridiculed, right? How often isn't it the believer who stands up for what is right, who who says to his co-workers, please don't take God's name in vain, who says, no, we, we have to do things above board. How often isn't he the one who's, who's passed over for not being a team player? And so sometimes we're almost tempted to say, Lord, what's the use? What's the use of, of living in obedience if my obedience is only going to be met with, with friction and hardship? Perhaps the widow, the woman from Shunem wondered that. What's the use? I've, 
I've obeyed God these seven years. I left everything, and now I have nothing. What's the use of obedience when obedience is met with friction and hardship? When we're tempted to think that way, we need to remember our Savior because Jesus knew what that was like. Don't we see it throughout the gospel that every turn as Jesus is doing the will of the Father who sent him not his own but God's will, it's met with hostility, it's met with, with friction, so much so that they finally had enough of him and they crucified him. Christ's obedience also came at a great cost, the cost of his own life. And so, Jesus sympathizes with you when you count the cost, when you pay the cost of being one of his disciples in this world. And the apostles teach us to count it a privilege. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 that it's been granted to us to to suffer for Christ in this way. In Philippians 3, he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Obedience to Christ, we know, cost Paul everything. It cost him his, his livelihood. It cost him his reputation, his status, his, his position in society. Paul's life did not get easier post-conversion to Christ. But what does Paul say? For Christ's sake, I suffer the loss of all these things. I count them as rubbish. I count those things as, as nothing. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that I may gain Christ, that I may even share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the perspective the apostle Peter calls us to have as well. In 1 Peter 4, the apostle says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The world is surprised when you don't join them. And Peter says, and they malign you. They mock you for this. But Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so Peter goes on to say, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, even if you are insulted for the name of Christ, even if you are insulted and maligned for your obedience to Christ, Peter says, you're blessed. You're blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. Obedience to God in this life is often rewarded with friction, friction with our friends, friction with our co-workers, friction with our society at large. The world hates true Christianity. When we look at the world around us, we see that it's not the mediocre Christians who are persecuted, it's the fervent, the earnest Christians who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But the psalmist says, the eyes of the Lord are ever towards the righteous, and His ears are open to their cries. Indeed, says Jesus, it is, the, it is the meek, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, whatever cost we've, we've paid in this life for being a follower of Christ, whatever cost we've paid will be repaid in full on the day of Christ's coming when God restores the fortunes of the righteous. And we see that here in this, upon this woman's return as she, as she comes and stands before the king of Israel. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went and appealed to the king for her house and her land. And, and this she does at the exact moment that Gehazi is telling the king about the time when Elisha raised her son back to life. Now, it is indeed striking that we should read about Gehazi, isn't it? Because the last time we read about Gehazi it was in chapter 5, where Elisha said to him, Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. But now we read that the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things Elisha has done. What's going on here? There's a few interpretations that commentators have put forward. One interpretation suggests that, well, perhaps uh, the accounts are just not recorded in chronological order. That certainly could be the case sometimes. Uh, Inspired narrators will organize stories according to theological concerns rather than chronological concerns. Another interpretation suggests that perhaps the king simply wasn't so concerned about the leprosy that perhaps he mitigated that concern by, by asking Gehazi to stand at a distance so as not to come into physical contact with Gehazi. And the third interpretation is that perhaps Gehazi repented of his sin, and perhaps God lifted the curse of his leprosy. We, of course, can't be sure, but exercising what one of my professors in seminary used to call sanctified imagination, I think, we can imagine that perhaps this was the case. Perhaps Gehazi repented, and God lifted the curse, because isn't this, after all, what God has done for all of us? All of us were subject to the curse of Adam, Adam's curse has clung to his descendants forever. But God redeems us from the power of that curse when we return to him in repentance and faith. When we humble ourselves before him and, and confess our sins, what does John say? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As I said, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but in this passage that centers on the theme of restoration, the word restore is used five times in these six verses. Perhaps it was the case that, that Gehazi had, hid, had had his fortunes restored also. Perhaps God had washed away his leprosy in the wake of repentance and faith. Perhaps the Lord restored him to gospel service, as we'll see God do later on in the gospels with Peter and the disciples who abandon Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. Regardless of what interpretation is true, Gehazi, we read, has been summoned by the king of Israel to give a testimony of the things that Elisha has done in Israel. And this is interesting. The king is, is curious to know about the works of Elisha. The only question, of course, is whether or not he will submit himself to the words of Elisha. Gehazi likely told the king about all the miracles from chapter 4, the story about Elisha and the widow's oil, the story about the pot of stew, the story about the floating axe head, and no doubt his, 
his testimony must have reached its climax when he said, and this too, king, he raised a dead boy back to life. We read in verse 5 that while he was telling the king how Elisha restored the king back to life, right then as he was telling the story, behold, there the woman was. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for a house in her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, here she is. And here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And this should really amaze us, another picture of God's providence, the wonder of God's providential arrangement of the universe. Just as Gehazi is, is telling the story of this woman, here she is in the king's court. Living proof of Gehazi's testimony. How will the king respond to this? How will the king of Israel ultimately respond to this miraculous testimony of the grace of God? The king is curious, but will he be converted? We'll find the answer in chapter 9, but for now, we see the king is moved by the woman's appeal. We know that as Proverbs says, the hearts of kings are springs of water in the Lord's hand, and God directs their hearts wherever He will. And we see that here. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, and, and the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. God restored this woman's fortunes. Not only has He moved the king to restore her land, but also to repay her for all the produce of her fields from the last seven years. It's what an amazing picture we have here of God's restoring grace on display. What an, an encouraging word this story must have spoken to the elect exiles in Babylon. They too must have wandered with the woman from Shunem. What are we going to do now that we've been divested of our inheritance? Will God, will He restore our fortunes too? Will God restore our fortunes too now that the, that the temple has been torn down and the walls of Jerusalem have been toppled over? What about us? Will God revive us? Will God restore us? Will God answer the prayer of, of Psalm 85? Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry forever? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We must have wondered, will God restore our fortunes to you? Will God really do what the prophet Jeremiah has said he will do, thus as the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Will God really keep that promise? The story must have served to say to them, yes, God will do what he has said he will do. God will restore their fortunes. That's who God is. He's the God who restores his fortunes. How meaningful the words of Psalm 147 must have been for them, that in the wake of their exile, in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, they could, they could still sing, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He seeks her exiled sons. He binds their wounds and gently heals the brokenhearted ones. God brings back His exiled sons. He restores their fortunes. He keeps His word. Which we read in the opening verses of Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by, by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
In the first year of Cyrus, the word of the Lord might be fulfilled by Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build up the house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of this people may his God be with him and let him go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God, the God of Israel. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. At the end of 70 years, God kept his promise. God restored the fortunes of his people. And that restoration was but a picture of the greater restoration to come. The restoration seen in the resurrection of Christ. The greatest reversal and restoration of all. We know that in Adam's fall, we sinned all we know. We look back in the garden and we say we, we had it all. We had goodness. We had righteousness. We had holiness. We had close fellowship with God. We had everything. But then we lost it all. We, we took a gamble on sin and Satan and we lost everything. And we impoverished ourselves. We were exiled from the Garden of Eden, exiled from the very near presence of God. But what did God do? When God saw Adam and Eve afraid and trembling all over, God had compassion on them and He promised them to to send His Son, born of a woman, to, to restore their fortunes, to make them blessed again, to lift the curse. This is what Christ did. He who was rich for love's sake became poor for us. He set aside the glories of heaven, trading them in for the humiliation of human flesh and the cross. But when the Father saw what the Son had done for us, He was well pleased, delighting what the Son had had done for us. What did God do? God raised Him up on the third day, and He exalted Him to sit at God's right hand, to give Him the name that is above every other name. God restored his fortunes. And the gospel says that if you're united to him, the gospel says if you've placed your trust in him, then the same will be true for you too. That even though you die, yet shall you live. God will restore your fortunes when Christ returns. Isn't this the point that the apostle Peter is is driving home? As he speaks these exiles who have suffered the loss of property, who have suffered the loss of reputation, who have suffered the loss of, of status or coming to Christ, what does Peter say to them? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection from the dead, born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that God is, is keeping in heaven for you. Peter's saying, what are the loss of all these things in comparison to the inheritance that God has in store for you? And so we too can sing the words of Psalm 126, the Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion. He has filled our mouths with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we give you thanks that you are the God who restores our fortunes. We're mindful, O God, that we lost everything in the fall, 
that those things weren't just taken from us, but we gave them up freely and we impoverished ourselves. And the curse of Adam has clung to us since then. And so, Father, we rejoice to know that you are a God of restoration, that you've come to us and you've lifted the curse from us. And, Father, we rejoice in the promise that you will restore us. For we've already experienced it in part, O God, in virtue of our justification. Already now we have Christ's goodness, righteousness, and holiness. Already now we have access to fellowship with the Father and with His Son. And this, Lord, is a guarantee that a day is coming when, when, when what we know in part we shall know in full, when Christ shall come again to lift the curse from this earth forever, to bring us into the new Jerusalem, that you will bring your exiled sons back to intimate fellowship no longer hindered by sin and curse. We long for that day, O God, and we pray for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.